Hey, I'm Liv. Welcome to Date with the Night. This is where you can get to know me and the guests featured in each episode, plus all things indie sleaze and much more. On today's first episode, I'm talking with Lena Abascal about her first book, Never Be Alone Again, How Bloghouse United the Internet and the Dance Floor. Thanks again for sending me this book. It was really a phenomenal read. You did such a great job at documenting this era. Thank you. Hi. What inspired you to write this book? The short answer is that this was kind of the highlight of my coming of age, and I really just have a soft spot for it. The more serious answer is as a writer and as a writer that focuses on music, culture, technology, this era really hits on all of those on top of fashion, gender, you could take it so much further, photography. But really, I felt like there was nothing of a book length that talked about this era. And it was kind of overlooked. There was a couple articles on Fact Magazine and Vice, and it kind of was getting treated as just like a silly, fake trend that just could be brushed off. And I really argue it actually influenced so much of popular culture today, whether you know it or not that it actually is, you know, a really important time period to discuss as it applies to music, culture, and beyond. So I was hoping to kind of give context to people about how some things we're dealing with today are actually the result of this time period. I really love the opening dedication to anyone who's ever illegally downloaded an MP3. It really was a great time for music exploration and really drives home that the blogs and internet users played a major role in how the scene unfolded. Totally. You mentioned in your book, the first thing to know about Bloghouse, sometimes stylized as Bloghouse with an H-A-U-S, is that nobody called it Bloghouse, at least not back then, when it all began. So this is kind of the case with even my account, Indie Sleaze. Yeah. We didn't call it that back then. So can you tell me a little bit about why the era is called Bloghouse or why that specific genre of music is called Bloghouse? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I totally encountered as well. Like I had a lot of mixed feelings about like, do I want to use the word blog house in the title? And do I want to use it throughout? But then ultimately it's like, if I don't have a concise genre name for like a super hard to categorize genre, what am I going to put this whole sentence of like dance leaning music between the period of 2005 and 2011 distributed. Like that's too much information. So I kind of just had to call it and be like, you know what? I'm going to call it this. I had some bros on some message board. Yes, I Googled the book. My, and they were like, she didn't even spell it with the H-A-U-S. This is fake. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, shut up. Um, <laughs> but anyways, all jokes aside, um, yeah, I mean, the, the genre name, like you mentioned, and like I say in the book, you know, it's not something we were using at the time. It's because this music, more so than like a specific sound, the way that something like disco, you know, there are like sonic similarities between anything in the category. Um, not just aesthetic similarities of the artist's look, but it, there really are like factual elements of like the type of like BPM it might be or things like that. But then this music, it really ran the gamut. Like we have like rap groups like the Cool Kids or rappers like Kid's Sister. And then we have like European producers like Boys Noise. And then we have kind of like talk white girl rap like Uffy. But then, you know, we have so much stuff. And like sonically, it isn't super, super similar per se. But the thing that united all of it was that it was all blowing up on blogs. Blog is something we don't really do anymore. I know you know what it is, but like for all the listeners, you know, this isn't just like one person's personal blog. Usually it would be like a group of people that would start a blog with a name, like Palms Out Sounds was a big one. Disco Dust was a big one. 
Um, Fluo Kids in France was a big one. There were so many blogs and they were free. No one was really making money off them. And they were posting MP3 links that you could illegally download the songs from. And it was a super fun free-for-all. But this, this music was all blowing up on these blogs. And these curators that were running the blogs were kind of helping get the music out there. Yeah, it was kind of this wild west where it wasn't exactly legal, but it wasn't exactly illegal either. It was a gray area. Yeah, exactly. And something I see being discussed a lot or argued about is Indie Slee's Bloghouse timeline. Mm -hmm. I've always said that this era kind of died out in 2012. People argue it was earlier, but your book outlines the timeline very clearly in a sense, with 2011 being marked as like peak mainstream awareness. Even in this quote from Goldroom in your book, he says, the punkness disappeared overnight. By 2012, everything sounded radio friendly and the major labels followed. Yeah. Echoed by like the cool kids who say the industry got the ball back. Now people are carefully manicuring their image through internet lenses. What's your personal timeline of it? When do you think it kind of died out in a sense or reached the mainstream? I mean, I agree with the artists interviewed like around 2011 and by 2012, it was in full action being executed by major labels and kind of industry planted artists for the same reasons that they say, you know, like musically software got to a certain point and people were making music in a much more like high def sound and professional level. Everything was mastered. Music labels stopped wanting to distribute music for free on these blogs and were really cracking down because streaming is now available, both SoundCloud and then also things like Spotify and not yet Apple Music, but you know, it's competitors. So blogs are basically irrelevant because the second an illegal link is live, it's going to be pulled. At the same time, media is competing now with these indie blogs because professional journalistic type of magazines and websites realize there's such a big audience that wants to read about this that they start covering the scene too. And so it's like, okay, if Vice makes a dance music website, that kind of kills off the ability for a super indie dance music website to be the number one or Billboard Dance starting or, you know, whether it's Pitchfork or The Fader, whoever it may be, really, really posting about these artists. So it's everyone. It's also promoters. Someone like in the US, Golden Voice or Live Nation, you know, maybe they were nervous about not making their money back doing these type of shows. But after five years of proven evidence of indie promoters booking these artists and selling out, they're like, okay, we'll do it now. And we can pay them even more and undercut everyone. And now we have the monopoly. So it's like every player in the game finally got involved on like a corporate level by around 2011. I'm not saying that that's all bad. It allowed a lot of people to make money they could have never made before. And music reached a lot of people. But with it, that indie ethos died. And, you know, that is a bummer in a lot of ways. In chapter two, teaching the rock kids to dance again, your book mentions that the movement emerged in a perfect storm of technology and music distribution, but it was also a knee-jerk response to the music that directly preceded it in the late 90s and early 2000s. There was like this cultural shift coming from a small growing factor of bands, DJs, and music nerds, and party people across the globe were tired of being tasteful. Things are just very curated on Instagram and different social media platforms. And do you think that's part of why there's this renewed interest in the era? Yeah, I really, really do think that that plays a role in it. Like aesthetically these days, everything is really, really manicured. And we've even seen in the last year trends on Instagram moving from like very edited feed photos to like 
the photo dump of like a carousel of kind of like shit posts. Yeah. And that was even kind of a big deal where it's like, oh, it's not all about being pretty and perfect and having your feed have like a color scheme, even for non-influencer normal people. Like people were thinking about that. And I kind of like the movement to sort of like, who cares? Let's just have a fun time, throw something up there and keep it moving. I mean, at least that's my attitude has shifted a lot towards that. Um, And I think that like with, you know, what we're calling Indie Sleaze era, when you look at these photos, like they're all unedited, they're almost all candid, and they just have this kind of like gritty, raw energy that, you know, things like punk have had. And that's so different than like the hyper manicured influencer world that we're in now that I think is just kind of refreshing. Like glamorizing it to a certain degree, I think is not always the move. Like there's plenty of darkness behind a lot of this imagery, but a lot of it was very fun. And like, when you see pictures like that, you're like, damn, when I go to a party now, I don't really see photos like that. Even if you send the Cobra snake to a party and he and I spoke about this, he can't even get people to take candids because everyone's so used to posing. Yes. Like everyone wants to see the picture. They're posing in it. Everyone has their phone in their hand. It's just very, very different aesthetically yeah that that really I think is part of it before we almost had this like digital beer goggles when we would upload like uploading like an album of 100 photos to Facebook with no editing whatsoever even like smartphone technology stuff it's like you couldn't curate your own image as heavily because like it was harder to get photos of yourself so you kind of had to leave it in the hands of others you know, you saw someone snap your photo at a party, you had to hunt down their website and then go through manually hundreds of photos to find yours, to save it, to re-upload it to your MySpace. Like that process, I don't think people even have the patience for that process now. They're just like, I'd rather just take my own. Yeah. And then even what you were saying before, I thought was really interesting. Like, you know, as I talk about in the book, like as aesthetics have moved into this really manicured territory, music has too. And I do think that like people are wanting to rebel against things being force fed to them through an algorithm that has like the facade of human touch. Like sure, we have these Spotify playlists with cute names and you see who curated it, blah, blah, blah. But it really all is like still part of the machine learning AI. Like it's just, there was something about the human element. And I really think people are gravitating back towards that even with the like emergence of things like Substack and podcasts and indie media and people wanting like hand to hand, like I'm the creator and I'm giving this to you, the consumer, not like brands to consumer as much. So I think it's really touching like a lot of parts of society and it kind of echoes back to like what people liked and found so authentic about this time. You say in your book that Blockhouse, it was this breath of joy post 9-11 New York needed. Mm-hmm. Post-COVID, is this like a determining factor behind the revival? I, like, You know, that's I obviously thought about people missing party culture because like it has been so inaccessible. And the second it's opened some places, it just immediately shuts again. Or Mm -hmm. if you do participate, which I have, it's so different. Like thinking about the risk, thinking about how selfish it is to attend perhaps, or how you have to frame the next four weeks of your life after wearing a mask, blah, blah, blah. Like it's obviously not the same, even if you managed to go to a party in your city. You know, I didn't think about it specifically with this era. I think that probably has something to do with it because it was such like a messy free-for-all shit show. And I think people are envious of that. I think also it has to do with just trend cycles. You know, they used to say history is repeating itself every 20 years. And I kind of think with the the speed of the internet, that's even too long. It's almost, you know, 10, 15. And that's where we're at with this era. Like if you say 
Indie Sleaze ends in 2012. Now we're in 2022 and it's like exactly 10 years. So it's like that. I think a lot of it is that, you know, because this is also happening with things like pop punk. Yeah. Which was like around a little bit earlier. So I'm not 100% sure, but I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when I was partying in this era, I wasn't even really old enough to contextualize like it having anything to do with things like Columbine or 9-11 or like the financial crisis that's happening in the midst of all of it. But like people I spoke to that were a little bit older than me contextualized it in that way. And I've seen people like Lizzie Goodman and others talk about that. Um, so I think I think that's a good point. Like I think also for myself, like, okay, this scene was so appealing to me because it's like it just as a personal anecdote, it's like, okay, I went to college to be a journalist. And then in the four years that I'm in college, which is the peak of this era, the entire industry changes. We go from magazines to blogs and then blogs die in favor of like corporate media. And even that hasn't figured out how to monetize online content. And so it's like, all right, well, I can't fucking get a job for my life. What am I doing learning this like antiquated trade? I'm just going to like have a blog with my friends and party because at least that's fun. In chapter three, where Atrex says, it's hilarious to me that we were downloading bootleg MP3s on ripped sites and playing low resolution versions of songs. Everything we were doing was lo-fi. Sound quality was not a factor. It was just raw energy. That's why, to me, Bloghouse could never really come back because everything is pristine now. You literally can't play a song from that era. It sounds too low res. It's like this unwritten rule in music production that pushing the limits of analog gear is acceptable and pleasant, yet pushing the digital domain is harsh and unacceptable. But I believe that like it could just be subjective. Do you think there will be a revival of like digital lo-fi, digital distortion, low sample rates? I think it also has a lot to do with the way we listen to music. So like in this era, you know, we're listening on our iPods, we're downloading illegal songs. I think manufactured lo-fi is one thing, like, and you're going to stream that on one of the DSPs, but like, this was more of a product of like legitimately not having the resources or the time. So I think there will always be, you know, just like people slap like a sepia filter. I know that's not cool anymore, but you know (laughs) what I mean? On a picture or like everyone, you know, wants like a faux Polaroid or I get that. I think like I could see artists doing that now, but I think the idea of like it truly just being like due to accessibility is unlikely because one of the upsides of, you know, us being past this era is that like production software is even more accessible. Like if Serato and Scratch Live is coming out in the Bloghouse Indie Sleaze era and that revolutionizes everything, 10 plus years later, you know, there's even more software. It's easier to bootleg. People can make music even cheaper and more easily. I think it also has to do with like, where is your music going to get played? Like, can you send the radio something that sounds that bad. The ball is a little bit more in the corporate's court. Mm -hmm. They have to make it sound as professional as possible in order to be picked up even algorithmically through playlists and stuff like that. What I really love about Never Be Alone Again is it explores this era on like a global scale. I really love the appendix of the blog house parties at the end of mm. chapter six. Thank you. What what country or city were you living in at the time? So I'm from Los Angeles. That's where I was born and raised. I moved away from Los Angeles to San Francisco in 2008. Then I moved from San Francisco to New York in 2012 having traveled there a lot in 2011 doing an internship. So kind of LA, SF, and then on the absolute tail end, New York. 
I remember reading actually your Vice column around the world in 80 raves. When you sent me the book, like I recognized your name, but I couldn't exactly pinpoint where I had heard it or seen it before. And you just did a great job. Um, And so like, I don't see Canada listed, which is fine. (laughs) We fly under the radar half the time. That's part of our charm, I think. Where do you think like Canada exists in this? Like, do you have kind of an opinion on that? Or like, like, because you have Canadian connections, right? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like, Felix Cartal is in it. He's Canadian. Um, isn't, what's his name? Jesse from Mastercraft from Montreal. Yeah, and Chromio, Dave Wines yeah. from Montreal. Yeah, so there's Montreal. definitely Canadians in it. I definitely don't want to say that the appendix in Chapter 6 is by any means all the parties or even necessarily the best ones. There could be a whole book that's, like, photos from a party and then descriptions of that party, which is kind of like what 80 Raves was. This was really reflective of, like, who I could get a hold of, who wanted to speak to me, and, you know, kind of some of the standout ones. But I will say, as I was doing research, I got so many messages of like, I throw a party in Milwaukee. I throw a party (laughs) in Tampa. Like, you know, like tertiary US markets, for lack of a better word. And like, that's absolutely valid too. And that's what's so amazing about this. Like, it got to a point where almost every city that had like a university had enough people, whether that's only 150 to 250 to throw a weekly party with this kind of music. And then those parties shared all the same performers. Like there would be a resident DJ in LA and he would meet someone that was throwing a similar party in wherever else. And then Philly, whatever. And he would go stay on their couch and play that party because it wasn't the kind of budgets where it's like, we're going to fly you out. We're going to put you up, blah, blah, blah. It was like, you know, kind of done on a shoestring budget and they were sort of all swapping, playing for one another. There were so many parties, so no shade to Canada at all. But I think that because one of the main Canadians in the scene, A-Track, had relocated to New York, kind of the energy he might have put towards doing a party in his hometown was reallocated towards New York. But they really were, like you said, parties about this that were into this like all over the world. And because of like the internet, maybe it started smaller, but then people are getting the music everywhere, like, you know to Australia overnight for free, which is unheard of. And suddenly they can kind of create their own version of it. And with that comes the it girls, the micro celebrities, the resident DJs, the promoters, the photographers that are popular in each city. And they kind of, you know, curate and dictate the like microcosm of that culture in their own way. And so there's similarities aesthetically and whatnot, because we're all looking at the same blogs, trying to emulate the same look. But, you know, they each kind of had their own local flavor. And I really like that. Now, which one of these parties would you frequent weekly if you could go back or what did you frequent weekly? Because like predominantly I started, you know, I was in LA in the beginning. I was really going to dance, which was a Tuesday night party. That was the all ages one because, you know, that's the easiest one for me to get into. I would also go to Moscow, which was a Wednesday night party, um, which was 18 plus. And I wasn't even really 18, but I had a fake ID that said I was 18, even though the drinking age here is 21. So it was like somebody else's ID that they had given me. That one was interesting because they had bands and I was coming from like being really into rock music and like hardcore and like emo. So kind of initially went to see like bands play on the patio and then inside they would have like DJs kind of doing remixes of similar indie bands. So that was a really easy like kind of stepping stone for me. Um, I would also go to Check Your Ponytail, which was similarly like they would book a really eclectic mix of like bands, rappers, weirdo experimental art stuff. But then the one I would always want to go to, and I did go, um, would be at Cinespace Dim Mac Tuesdays, 
before it was called that, it was just, I think, Cinespace Tuesdays. Um, but that was kind of like the one where you would see everyone you had been looking at online. Artists, models, it girls, people on these record labels. It was very cool, at least to me at the time. Like, I truly thought it was the coolest thing. And I mean, I could not go to these every week because I didn't have the kind of parents that were like, kind of letting that slide. But I definitely would be like, oh, I'm staying with a friend. And then we would go and like things like that. So I kind of was able to sort of hijack my way into being like a micro fixture at this and bopping around. And I do think that helped when working on the book because people were like, oh, I remember you. And I was like, I promise you, like, yeah, I've, I've been I've been around. And so I think people trusted me, which was nice. I loved MySpace. And I was really, really, really sad when people migrated to Facebook. Oh, me too. And there was this quote in your book, a generation was teaching themselves to HTML by customizing their layouts, often adding in line of code to force their profile songs to play automatically. I was one of those people. Yeah. What was your MySpace like? So MySpace played such a big role for me. Something I was about to say is like, once I got to college, it was a free for all. Like I went out all the time. Like I always joke to my friends, like if I don't remember something, I'm like, yeah, because I was out every day for four years. So MySpace was a way that I would find these parties because I moved to a new city. I don't know anyone. And I was like, okay, I can find the party in San Francisco that plays this kind of music on MySpace. And I did. It was called Blow Up. And then there was this secondary one that was a little more indie leaning called Pop Scene. And I found that just through MySpace, messaged them. And they're like, yeah, come. I think they even like gave me a free ticket the first time. And that was just a way to like make friends with people and just find, you know, commonality in a in a way that was a little bit easier than platforms since then. But my MySpace, you know, MySpace really went in trends. Like for a while, it was like maximalist, like super, super customized, super colorful, almost like 90s era, like a mouse that kind of had like the pointer finger or like a kind of Lisa Frank mouse that was colorful. And then it kind of shifted to like minimalist. Like we're going to do a play on the original MySpace, like blue, white with some orange. But instead of a top eight, I'm going to make it only a top four. And I'm going to make all the low letters lowercase. And you know, that kind of like elite academic looking hipster look. So I kind of played into all of that. Uh, I, you know, had my shitty digital camera. I had a sidekick. So I had a lot of photos that I took at that kind of classic angle in the sort of intersection of where emo meets indie sleaze or blog house or whatever you want to call it. Um, I had a lot, a lot of photos from clubs that had like, you know, the watermark of the club on the bottom. That was so key. Both candid and posed photos because photo booths were so, so popular, like things with like, you know, backdrops. Um, so yeah, I, I was really, really on MySpace. And in 2008-ish, once it's really opening to, you know, people with college emails, I just really had no interest. And I didn't get a Facebook until I was in college. And for a year or so, 2008, 2009, I was using both. And then finally, it's like MySpace is fully out of vogue. It's almost considered like taboo to people to use it or they're thinking you're like dumb and trashy, which is so stupid. But I do think that was the perception. And so then I shift to Facebook where I have – I recently deleted my Facebook. But Same. a million – a million albums with like, you know, like tight, like I created, we created disco, like the Calvin Harris song or whatever would be the album title. And then there's like a million photos that all look the exact same. <laughs> um, and that was, that was the move at the time. But, you know, Facebook didn't have a musical element. The closest you could get would be, you could like become a fan of a page for an artist, but it didn't have 
a embedded streaming player the way that MySpace did. It didn't have its own record label and series of parties the way that MySpace did. It just really didn't have that. And honestly, no social media since then has. SoundCloud is not social media. Like it's a streaming service and you can comment, but it doesn't have the same functionality as MySpace. And I mean, I think maybe it was just too hard to monetize. And so people have kind of veered away from it, but it really was a, a unique platform. What's next, in your opinion, for bands and artists? Like, has any online platform truly replaced MySpace in terms of features specific to independent artists? Or? I really don't think so. And there's a really interesting episode about this from this podcast that's since been canceled on The Verge called Why Do You Push That Button? And it talks about why we haven't had a music-centric social media since. I really recommend anyone to listen to that. I've been talking to a lot of people about this. Like since the book came out, I've got a lot of really interesting, cool people, you know, messaging me, including like people that are on like the innovation team at Spotify. And I, I think everyone's trying to crack this and figure it out. And I don't know, like I am not on the cutting edge in that way. A lot of people are telling me it's going to be in like the web three space. And often I'm just kind of eye rolling because I'm like, okay, bro, like sure. But I mean, <laughs> I'm very open to that. I mean, this is not the same, but like something I've really enjoyed seeing is like this artist, Fred, again, from London. He's kind of on his first tour right now. And he's been doing this thing where like if someone messages him and is like, I'm coming from out of town to go to your show and I'm going to be alone, he'll be like, where is everyone meeting up before? And kind of like have his fans do like an unofficial meetup so everyone can like go to the show together. And then he'll post on his Instagram story like for an hour and then delete it like a dropped pin to where he's going to do like a secret after party later. Like I know that that isn't like innovative, especially from a tech perspective, but like it's been nice to see in this like brief post-COVID moment people coming together in such like a granular way. It isn't like, oh, you got a promoted Instagram ad for a sponsored after party because you're a fan of this artist. Like it feels very hand to hand, which I really like. Will there ever be a return to a fully independent artist? Do we have to wait until the next major technological advancement that could potentially disrupt corporate streaming? And I do think a lot of it is tied to exactly what you said, the next piece of technology that allows things to rise to the top without like an AI algorithm. Every tech person is maybe trying to figure this out, but also maybe, I don't know. I hope they are. I hope they aren't just like, I'm giving up. I'm going to create an NFT marketplace. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it's their priority. Just like during Bloghouse, the reason why there was a five-year gap before like corporate corporations stepped in was because they were so turned off. They were like, there's no money in music. Napster fucked us all. We're not touching that with a 10-foot pole. We're going to focus on other things that aren't as risky. And in that moment where no one would touch it, the only option was for people to do it themselves. And that's exactly how this whole thing was created. And so I don't know if if people need to step back in or there needs to be kind of that, that gray area. Um now that I'm like old and retired, I'm like, maybe it's happening more than I realize it's happening, but I don't think so. I just know people want it. People don't want to just listen to things that the algorithm has fed them. And I think the joy of discovery is dead for a lot of people and they want it back. Yeah, there's a bit of that on TikTok. I know some people are finding new music yeah. through TikTok. And there is this 
theoretical disruptive power of NFTs, like you mentioned, but that world seems to be very unclear. Like I've seen Azalea Banks go off on her Instagram. She's pretty vocal about her disdain for the streaming services and streaming industry, specifically Spotify. And she posted about it recently. There were a few comments that mentioned NFTs, some serious, some joking. Does that tech really have any potential or you're asking is the wrong person? Sort of- I like don't fully get it. But I mean, I follow Azalea. I think she is insanely talented. And like she was set for a level of star power that just something along the way, someone fucked up. And like I just think she should be so much bigger than she is. But like I do like that because she's not, she's able to be so vocal. And like I know she played this party in Miami that like the only way you could attend is if you had this certain crypto. It's like this online community that's considered a DAO, which is like this new trend of like you buy in by all having this same thing. And so it's like this community called Friends with Benefits. And so it's created by this guy, Trevor McFedries, who was DJ Ski Ski, who's in the book. So like he is coming from this bloghouse ethos. And I know he's trying to like elevate independent artists and like help them make money. And it's through Web3 related things. But she played this party and people were like, girl, I'm not going to this shit. I'm not buying this like scam crypto. Why are you doing this? And she believed and she posted, she was like, this might be the last chance for people without like, you know, family money and like generational wealth to ever become rich. And I don't necessarily know if I agree with that. I don't know if that's the answer, but I know it's never been harder. But like, I can see where she's coming from. Yeah, she kind of came up in this time where it was that transition, you know, 212, I think that was her big breakout hit. And I think that came out in 2011. So she sort of was on the border between this time where kind of what we're discussing with Bloghouse, you could be independent and with your career and kind of steer it in your own way. But it was this like line where she sort of encountered this world where now you had to sort of rely on the corporate entities in order to build yourself up. And you mentioned in your closing chapter that there wasn't much to monetize during this era. And Bloghouse was kind of, it was done for the love of it, which is what I loved about even blogs. It was like, People weren't writing about what they didn't like. They weren't necessarily critiquing anything. They were writing about what they loved. And that's what kind of drew people into their blogs, drew people into their their persona. And with streaming payouts as low as they are, like, could you argue that doing it for the love of it still remains true for independent artists today? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think people are still doing things for the love of it. And kind of like I talked about with you know, maybe blogging is not in vogue anymore, but like a lot of people are still, you know, I have these thoughts and I want to create this thing and I'm going to do a podcast and I'm going to have, you know, not that many listeners and that's fine. Or like, I'm going to do a sub stack instead of try and sell this article device for $200 on a net 60 payout. Like, I do think that there's people that are finding ways to like, you know, say their piece and do their thing in these indie avenues. And I do think like people are trying to find ways to monetize that for sure. I just think it's interesting with Bloghouse. It's like, okay, this music was never that lucrative. But now post like EDM explosion, people are like, okay, well, the money's out there. It's just not reaching me. Yeah. And I think it it feels different. It's like just 2011, 2012, like I talk about in the book, like when Coachella goes two weekends, and this isn't just me coming from like a Californian standpoint, like, you know, that's the biggest, most like popular festival in North America and that and like Glastonbury or like, you know, some of the biggest ones in the world, like most iconic, like Woodstock level, you know, it goes two weekends, which really is a line in the sand where it's like people are no longer going 
for the music. They're going for the brand of Coachella and the tickets are selling out before the artists are even announced. And with that comes a million other music festivals. Like every weekend, there's something hard, which has now been purchased by Insomniac. But for a moment, Insomniac, the creators of Electric Daisy Carnival, are like feuding with their alt stepbrother, <laughs> so-and-so, like of hard. And they're doing all these events in Los Angeles. And there's just a festival for everything. All of these festivals start touring. 2012, I think we get Holy Ship, which is like the rave cruise. And now there's like a million different rave cruises. Everything is exploding. And like DJ fees are astronomical. Like people are getting insane money. Vegas also starts booking way more like EDM artists than before. And now we're kind of moving away from that and doing like sort of 2000s pop acts in Vegas. But all of these things are happening where like people are scrounging up the money to have this like billion dollar industry of EDM. And so I think that if you've been like making music this whole time and you're still getting these like thousand dollar gigs, you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Um, But I mean, yeah, I think with Bloghouse, you know, it was very ma and pa and then it, it explodes and there is some really, really serious money at exactly that crux um, of time change. I guess that's kind of off topic, but. No, that's, that's perfect. And it kind of even ties into like the movie, We Are Your Friends. Like you've oh my seen gosh. it. It's in your book, right? <laughs> I've seen it. I've absolutely seen it. I saw it in theaters. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't admit that. No, that's amazing. I watched it recently. I had seen it before, but it was interesting because that song, We Are Your Friends, which influenced the title of your book, it almost seems like that movie applied a song from an era that wasn't really applicable to that era. It seemed like that was a movie more documenting like the rise of EDM. And I know they throw parties in their backyard and that kind of throws back to the ethos of this time. But could that maybe be why that film didn't do as well as it had hoped to? Because it was like kind of mixing two different eras in a sense and not really an accurate portrayal of how that song or even the artists associated with that song kind of came to be. I mean, I totally agree with you. Like, you know, We Are Your Friends slash Never Be Alone Again, which is what inspired the title of my book, a song originally by the rock band Simeon comes out in like 2002. And then, you know, the Justice remix slash collaboration comes out in 2003, re-released in 2004, and then really, really is like one of the rallying cries of this era, especially because it has such a fun like call and response-ified chorus where, you know, a DJ can play the part because we are your friends, turn down the volume and everyone's screaming back, you'll never be alone again, which is really fun, especially like if you're playing songs that, you know, some of them don't have any vocal edits, but it also like encapsulates the whole era, like sort of just the the humanity of it. Um, And it just feels, it feels good. But that movie, I mean, I saw it because I was just too curious not to see it. I think ultimately the amount of people that even know about the song, We Are Your Friends, was not a big enough audience to make or break a movie. Yeah, I just don't think it was a good movie. But I think (laughs) potentially that aside, I think maybe it was too soon. I think also like Zac Efron being this like underdog is just kind of unbelievable. But um, I mean, I totally see why they wanted to make it. They were like, EDM has taken over America. It's become the new like spring break level mainstream sound and music festival culture is a huge part of youth culture. Let's make a movie about like uh, someone aspiring to be a DJ and then, you know, overcoming obstacles to make it happen. Like they do that about 
every like boxing movies are about that. There's like rock star movies about that. So many movies are about writers. I totally get the thought process. Um, but it, it was funny to have this song that was about an era that was not the era that was shown in the film at all. I totally agree with you there. And I think as I talked to James from Simeon in the book, and he even says like they message us and they paint this picture of this like really gritty film and then it comes out and it's not what we expected and it wasn't a hit at all. So I'm curious if maybe what that means for like the future of rave movies, but no, that was, that was very silly. And I remember even just like people I knew, like my parents probably were like, is that what you do on the weekends? And I'm like, no, it's not the same. <laughs> yeah, especially just he's supposed to be from the wrong side of the tracks. But when he's running and listening to music, he's like running through this really nice suburb. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't necessarily buy this entire story. It was funny. I was looking at uh, Instagram or Golf Shakira and like people were rating that as like their comfort film. Interesting. I guess it's not like super complex so it's just yeah. an easy watch I mean, it's kind in of a sense like, I mean I'm not over here trying to like I mean I don't know I guess this is like at odds with a lot of like how people make money writing think pieces online but like not everything is that deep and like we can like apply theory to every like silly feel good thing and like find issues and make it some like I don't need to have like a critical conversation about this movie <laughs> and I know you that's not what you mean but like I just don't think it's that deep I didn't love it I totally saw it I get why they made it. It's just, it's silly. So I can imagine maybe someone like, you know, smoking weed and like staying in one night and being like, fuck it, I'm going to watch this kind of as a joke, but I'm still finishing it. That's exactly what happened when I watched it recently. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> you I, told the exact I story. You. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's very silly, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Like the people who love that song and who recognize that the title of my book is lyrics from that and the people who took that movie seriously, don't really intersect. Yeah. No, I agree <laughs> with you. If they did, the book would be much more popular. <laughs> I mean – Oh, I, not I think it's, it's growing not popular. in popularity. I just mean like <laughs> if it was like, you know, like a super, super mainstream EDM book, I think it may be more I – don't, I don't know. It would just be a different audience. And what do you think the differences are between like the first coming of the hipster indie scene and Vloghouse era and now – I mean, aesthetically, I think a lot of like the look at the the time we're talking about in these sleeves was really inspired by like the 70s and 80s. Whereas now I think it's much more inspired by like the late 90s, early 2000s, even with kind of like gothy rave looks and then also like Y2K slash like pop punk looks. Um, so I think aesthetically it's really different. Like I was wearing basically like spandex and slouchy boots looking like out of a jazzercise video from all American apparel and like some thrift store stuff. And that's just not the look anymore. Um, Hopefully it will be the yeah, look soon. It was definitely you the never look. know. I had a great time doing that look. I mean, I look back and I'm like, oh my God, this was so ugly. I don't think people were doing like ugly on purpose looks in Indie Sleeves era. I think sometimes it just was ugly because it was just gritty. Whereas now I think that like there are trends that are kind of more like ugly on purpose. I don't really think we were doing that. Um, I think people thought we looked really hot, which is really silly looking back. We did. We looked so hot. Did just, we? <laughs> we did. I, you could say it was tacky, but you know, we were breaking the rules. Yeah. Having fun. I was having I a lot that's... of fun. So that's the most important part to me. Yeah. I mean, I think like we talked about like the amount of like manicured content was very different, even if just because we didn't have the tools. Like we couldn't edit our own photos. Many of us couldn't even take our own photo because we didn't have a camera phone or the phone wasn't good enough 
or whatever. The camera had one megapixel. Yeah, I think like that is so different. I also think like because influencer culture didn't exist because like brands hadn't figured out how to tap like quote unquote everyday-ish influencer people for their products, you were either like an actual Hollywood celebrity doing brand deals and being in magazines or you were an it girl that wasn't monetizing it at all. Yeah. Um, unless you somehow became a DJ. Yeah. Um, but I think that like it's definitely impacted like who the cool girl is and what she does. Like now the cool girl like has all these businesses and you can like buy her like face mask online or like whatever. And I just think that was not the vibe at all at the time, which I think is so interesting. It was just like, I'm just here like looking nonchalant and cool. Like I don't have a website. I don't have a product. I don't have a collaboration bikini line. Like there's no link in bio. Like it's just so different. I also think like, and this is not something I think is cool. Um, like like wellness culture. I think it's really good that like people are being more aware of like mental health and like also just like taking care of themselves. And it's like considered cool to like want to be healthy. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot more like glorification of like really, really like, you know, a lot of drug use, a lot of like really scary, like, you know, eating disorder stuff. And like that look was really, really glamorized. And of course there's always going to be like fringe communities that are still speaking about that. And, you know, many of us still have that little pit in our stomach of like, damn, I kind of wish I looked like that. But I do think that like the current trends lean a lot more towards health and wellness to the degree that it's often like really inauthentic. But like if you had told me while I was looking at like Amy Winehouse in those ballet flats that like one day it was going to be cool to like wear yoga clothes all the time, like I would be like, no way. Like there's no way that's going to be cool. That's like the least punk thing in the world. Yeah, and I think it I think it also harkens back to like now there's this rapid gentrification of most big cities across mm. the world. So it's almost made it impossible, not impossible, but a little bit harder to have cheap fun that was available to you and I when we were kind of coming of age. Like I saw That's very true. Yeah, I saw Grimes perform for five dollars at a DIY venue in my city that no longer exists due to like new bylaws and noise restrictions. I mean, that was a really big thing in Australia too. Like they had all of these like curfew laws and it really, really changed nightlife. I would really like to see that kind of come back in some way in in cities, especially here in Toronto. Some people suggest that this was like the last subculture to exist before Tumblr would go on to make like niche online subcultures part of like the every Mm -hmm. moment online and offline. Mm -hmm. What is your personal blog house anthem? I mean, I love the song that I picked for my book, but I mean, I also love Shake and Pop. I also love Pop the Glock and like The Party, Justice and Uffy. I had so much fun like singing to those. I love All of Cross by Justice, including like, you know, songs like Stress and just like really intense bangers. Um, There's just so many fun bops from that time. And like, you know, when you play them, they just really sound like that moment. But I mean, even like non-traditional dance in this type of way, but like like artists like Santi Gold and MIA and like bands like The Rapture, like I loved that music so much. I loved Chromio so, so much and like Needy Girl, like I loved dancing to that. I loved Crookers. I remember seeing Crookers and Mastercraft and the Bloody Beat Roots all for the first time one year at Coachella. And then I remember the year prior to that seeing 
Chromio into Simeon Mobile Disco into Justice and just being like, I cannot move. I cannot pee. I cannot drink water because then I will have to pee. I just need this spot against the barrier. I All my friends are gone. It doesn't matter. Like, it was just so fun. And I mean, of course, and I know this isn't really like coming out necessarily during this era, but like Daft Punk, the whole Discovery album and really everything like that all feeds into this for me. Yeah, I guess. Those are great that's a answers. That's not one answer. We're, but we're <laughs> going to add them to the collaboration playlist yeah. that will be accompanying this uh, podcast episode. I really like what you said about f- cheap fun. I mean, I guess I've never heard that phrase. Obviously, I know what you mean by it. But I mean, I think it plays into everything we were talking about, about like how could someone throw a party at a bar that's free before 10 p.m. and $5 after if there's no indie artist that can even play for basically just for drinks. Cause like the second you have any buzz, you're massive now. So you go from playing like in your hometown or maybe even not, maybe you've never played a show. You upload something online and you get so big that your first show is a big show. Yeah. Like, of course there are still bands playing like punk house shows and things like that. And like resident DJs. But I do think there used to be kind of a lot of small steps and now there's like four huge steps and it's like really hard to even make the first one um so I think yeah it makes sense that there's just less opportunities I also think there was a moment where all of these after it went from like indie promoters doing these cheap fun free events whatever then there were all these brands that were trying to like monopolize on this like Scion was really big into it and even like Sonos a bit later and like they're throwing these free parties, free with RSVP, booking all these acts. And then I think even that trend of like the free one day festival sponsored by a brand is kind of over because it's probably like extremely hard to prove any sort of ROI on that. Yeah. And now that we have like insane metrics, like I've worked in advertising for like almost 10 years on and off. And it's like, you can no longer really sell something as like, we're, we're doing it for the vibe. Because like people at the top are like, how many click-throughs did we get? How many emails did we capture? How many pieces of user-generated content were created at our festival? You used to just be able to be like, if you build it, they will come. And that will maybe make our like now defunct car company cool. And we're going to – like Mountain Dew had a record label and a blog. And like that's just not what brands are doing now because you can do an influencer campaign and guarantee basically the outcome. Like they're not just, you know – spending millions on vibes, though it was a really good run with a lot of good open bars. What is a common misconception about the scene, in your opinion? That it was all DJs? Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, if everyone thinks that, but I think that's a really important one um, because it really was about bands and vocalists and rappers, and it really was diverse in that way. Even if those people would also play DJ sets, I think it was a lot more, like, multi-genre And that's kind of what I talk about with like the umbrella of Bloghouse encapsulating all of these different formats and styles of music. I think definitely it's not just all DJs. And do you think the music was liberating? Hmm. I see some arguments about this. Like people are like, oh, it wasn't as liberating as disco of the 70s. Well, I think something that does kind of make this era a little different than something like disco or punk is it's pretty apolitical. Yes. Both the message in the actual music if it has lyrics or if the artist speaks about the inspiration and the people behind it's like personas like what they're speaking about publicly and like what they talk about standing for I do think it was pretty apolitical um which I don't have an issue with I just do think that that makes it inherently different than a lot of other genres but in terms of like 
feeling liberated and having fun and partying and just feeling myself, I absolutely felt that. But I, I mean, I don't think it was really pushing an agenda in a way that like had ties to like gender and race and politics the way that other genres have. And I think that that's okay. Not everything is going to do that. Yeah. It brings in a mixed crowd of people and even just like electro clash of the time was very much of like a punk and expressive community for like the queer community. And Peaches kind of reiterates this, like she was quoted in an article today saying it was all these women leading a revolution or even events that were referenced in your book, like blow up in Mm -hmm. San Francisco is kind of described as this place for freaks and weirdos or people who felt like they didn't belong. Um, And, you know, then you had other events like dance by Cesar Rios and the heist by Mark Rodriguez, the all ages parties with like a huge Latino following. I felt in a lot of ways that I was seeing more women in the industry taking charge of their career and kind of coming into their own, which was very inspirational to me at this time. This is kind of like not related to that, but like whenever I post Lady Gaga or Katy Perry, people get angry and argue that they weren't really like a reflection of this time or they weren't part of the scene. But these artists were frequently at all the major clubs and parties. Like even in your book, you reference that Lady Gaga was like kind of begging to play Cinespace. So what place do artists like Lady Gaga or Katy Perry have within the Indie Sleaze or blog house scope? I mean, I think if people are saying that they're not part of Indie Sleaze, that's just like factually incorrect. Like the music sonically aside, like these women were attending these events and were friends with the people. Like Katy Perry was dating DJ Skeetsky and going to Cinespace. Like that she and being friends with like Jeremy Scott and Cobra Snake, like she was there. And same with Lady Gaga. Like, sure, they've, you know, ascended to a level that is unlike anyone else in this space. And maybe they weren't, you know, playing by the bloghouse rules the whole time because when you're making pop music, you don't really need blogs because you can use like the existing industry infrastructure. But they were absolutely at these things. I mean, I remember. Like when Katy Perry was part of Warp Tour in 2008, like she wouldn't have done that. That's like an insanely grueling tour. Yeah. If she wasn't, you know, not, she wasn't famous. Yeah. But they also, especially aesthetically, like you see Lady Gaga with those glasses, with the chain, and like Katy Perry with her kind of like vintagey meets American apparel looks. They were definitely in it. And I think like, something about this scene that was really interesting and kind of first of its kind, it was like the intersection of, underground indie dance music with Hollywood culture, like capital H Hollywood TMZ shit. And like you have people like DJ AM, RIP to thank for that, where like he's bridging the gap between, you know, Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, and this like super hip fun scene because these girls don't want to go to the same parties as every celebrity. They're bored you know, the paparazzi are there. Instead, they want to do something fun and different. And for them, it's kind of an escape. Whereas for everyone else, it's like, this is my life. But I think, you know, the Katy Perry's and Lady Gaga's of the world, they found the same fun in these events and were kind of the micro celebrities of it at the time. And, you know, it happened to work for them. There were plenty of other like pop girlies doing vocals over some DJ set that aren't famous now. Yeah. But it worked for them. And you also run a book club, don't you? So what's a book that you've been reading recently that you've really been loving? Yeah, I mean, so this is obviously like fully unrelated to this era. But um, yeah, book club, if you're in Los Angeles, please pull up. Junior High is an art space nonprofit in Glendale. We do a book club there once a month. All of the 
curations are written by people of color, queer people, women. So, um, you know, you might find out about some book recommendations that aren't, you know, what your English teacher might have told you unless your English teacher is me. Um, but I, recent, I recently read a collection of short stories called Sabrina and Karina. Um, I don't usually, I don't like avoid short stories, but I just, I'm working on a novel. So I'm reading a lot of novels, but um, it's by this woman, Callie Farahado Anstein. But yeah, Sabrina and Karina, it was so good. It's like eight or so stories. They all focus on different women who live in the Denver, Colorado area and are all both um, like Mexican-American and indigenous. And so that's her own um, her own experience. But she's all, she's from Denver. But it's just really like, you know, the story will be 12 pages or so, but like it has like a novel's worth of world building and you just are so connected to them so fast. And I was just so impressed and was like, damn, this is so good. Oh, I'll definitely check it out. I love to read. So anytime I get a kind of new thing on my radar that I love to check yeah, it's it out. pretty new. I think last year. Well, thank you again so much for coming on this podcast and talking about your book. I think everyone should read this, especially if they're interested in indie sleaze or interested in the Blockhouse era. You really sum it up in the most like beautiful way. You can buy Lena's book at Urban Outfitters or on Amazon or your local indie bookstore, but I'll also link to it in the description of my Instagram post to promote my episode with Lena. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy you enjoyed the book. And um, if anyone does have the answers to our burning questions about the future of independent music communities and technologies role, please hit my DMs because I would love to hear your theories and I'm excited about the work someone will eventually do. Hopefully it's even something we can get to the bottom of on this podcast. Thanks for listening and subscribe to my Patreon for more episodes of Date with the Night where you can get to know me and the guests featured on each episode, plus all things indie sleaze and much more. Thanks for listening and see you later. See you later. See you later.